Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everyone? This is Tim with the Coffee Theology and Jesus Podcast. Thanks for coming back and tuning in. We have another great episode for you guys. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Ben Kramer. Now, Ben is a uh, pastor. He's an author. He's also a writer. And I got to say, this interview um, was really good. Ben has a deep knowledge of, of not only just world history, but of American history and also, of course, of the Bible and uh, church history. And even though this episode was recorded quite a few weeks ago now, I found it almost prophetic in nature because what Ben was talking about, you can see we're kind of in the middle of starting to repeat ourselves. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I got so much out of it. Um, that being said, a couple quick uh, just uh, housekeeping notes. Of course, if you can share this episode, that would be a huge help. Sharing the podcast is the best way to get uh, what we're doing out there. And honestly, it's been so great to see um, our views and our downloads growing each week. And that is because of you guys. So thank you for doing that. Also, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes and on Spotify. And I really hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. So take note, see what you think. I would love your feedback. Uh, you can shoot us an email, podcast at coffee theologyandjesus.com or of course give us a comment or a message on our social media accounts either on Facebook or on Instagram at CTJ Podcast. All right guys check out this interview I hope you enjoy it. Well Ben welcome to the Coffee Theology and Jesus Podcast it is great to have you on. It's really good to be here. (laughs) So the way we met which actually this is our first time meeting, but the way we met was you had um, a Facebook post that kind of went viral. Um, And I got to be honest, I'm a little jealous because I typed up something in the same vein of what you did, you typed up only mm-hmm. yours was like a trillion times better. So you had like a thousand times more shares, but I loved it. It was great. That's how we met. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. It really yeah, is. Yeah, so good to hear, be here. I was surprised when that went. I honestly, like I've told this to a couple of people, I wrote that out just heartbroken and sad one night and thought, I'm not going to post this. And I actually thought about deleting my Facebook completely that next day. Mm-hmm. I posted it and that happened. So I was, I was just as surprised as anyone else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you give us kind of a, a, the, the five minute big picture view of you, like your life, how did you grow up? What led you to where you are now? And where are you now? What are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. And uh, if anyone knows anything about Idaho, they know that we are the potato supplier of the world. But we we are also uh, very rural. Um, uh, and I, I think rural patriotic Christianity is a really good way to frame the type of um, church life that you'd encounter here, no matter what sort of denomination or non-denomination you're a part of. Um, and so I was raised here in Idaho, moved to Nampa, Idaho, which is about 30 minutes south from Boise. 
um, even more rural culture. I was homeschooled uh, my whole Same. My whole K through 12. Re- really? No uh, way. Up, up so until random. ninth grade. I, I made it to ninth grade and I went to a small private school. I was one of five in my class. So, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you know exactly what it's like. Uh, so I, I gave my life. So I was born and dedicated in the church of the Nazarene, which is evangelical Wesleyan. And then my parents decided to homeschool us and that church kind of turned their back on, on them because they um, really didn't affirm of homeschooling. And so we attended a non-denominational church and that pastor became uh, an outspoken white separatist. He was um, not supremacist. He just thought that whites and, you know, any other color need to be separate. And uh, that came out in his preaching and he developed homeschool curriculum that denied the Holocaust as well as framed slavery as a gift to African people. Um, otherwise they wouldn't hear the gospel, um, you know, in his perspective. So when my parents found that out, we quickly left and we were, but we were a part of that community for over three years um, then we were just part of a non-denominational, like Pentecostal-leaning church, and I remember seeing a pastor arrested for credit fraud right in front of me. We had to change the locks on the door of the church, and so by the time I reached, you know, a senior year in high school, I had given my heart to the Lord, been a part of six church splits, wow. um, a call to preach when I was seven, and had no way, no like no idea of what that looked like in a healthy body of, of believers. And so my parents left the church, almost left the faith completely when I was a mm. senior in high school. And I made my way back to the Church of the Nazarene and um, started volunteering for a youth group. And they encouraged my call. They gave me a, a scholarship to study theology at the Nazarene University here in Idaho. And so I stayed there for my uh, undergrad and my first master's degree and then left for Kansas City to study church history at their uh, graduate school um, and just through that whole theological education mm. became this this journey of faith to really put my my upbringing into perspective in more of a global worldview a biblical mm. worldview um, and I've I just can't believe where I came from. And so now I'm back in Boise pastoring a church in the heart of the city, right next to the university here at Boise state. Um, and so it's been this full circle and uh, it's, it's just been kind of a crazy, uh, crazy journey to see how God has really shaped and formed me from where I've come to where I, where I am today. And um, I just can't help but thank God for, you know, really bringing me out of that with very little therapy. No, I'm just kidding. But I've had plenty. <laughs> Same. You Same. Know. Yeah. No. Wow. No shame. I got to say the, um, the white separatists, I mean, yeah. that is a, I was not ready for that. I gotta be honest. Like, wow. <laughs> like you survived, you were in that. And thank God your parents were like, nope, this is just, this is crazy. Yeah. I, wow. That's well, wild. Well, and crazy thing is that that's not uncommon in Idaho. So, I mean, I'm a history nerd. So just a little bit of history oh. for Idaho is uh, Idaho wasn't founded as a state um, during the Civil war and the confederacy had this mass migration to idaho to make it a white dominant agricultural state 
Abraham Lincoln established the capital of Boise to have a union presence because it was becoming so overwhelmed with the Confederacy. So we have, while some states have monuments to Confederacy, we have entire mountain ranges named after Confederate generals and captains. We have entire cities and towns. Um, and so it's, we, the KKK had a compound in the panhandle for a long, long time before they moved to Eugene, Oregon, of all places. Um, and so it's, it's steeped in that culture. Um, and every pastor after the one who was outspokenly white separatist in just the little town of Nampa, they all had white uh, separatist or nationalist views that they would make racist jokes from the pulpit. They would. And so like looking back now, I saw that trend through every pastor I had, except for the, the pastor that I had in the Nazarene church when I went as a high schooler, it was a night and day difference from the white nationalism that I had growing up to the pastor that I had in high school. So let's park there for a minute because man, I mean, First off, that's really crazy. It's crazy for me because, okay, I live on the East Coast in New Jersey, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. New Jersey is known, obviously we always vote blue as a state, but where I live, like South Jersey is very conservative, but I wouldn't say it's to that level of, you know, of blatant racism, right? Where you have pastors yeah. who are like, nope, this is a biblical thing. Um, something that we hear a lot from from you know, political pundits from, from pastors, from conservative people is that, well, no, racism, a thing of the past, like it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's yeah. racist to, 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 to bring up color. Um, we have to be colorblind. <laughs> I mean, we, this is what we hear, right? I mean, this yeah, is what we hear. Absolutely. And I, I do think that this past year, at least in my circles, a lot of pastors who are older white men have been kind of forced to reckon with the reality mm. of the George Floyds of the world. And frankly, it's been yeah. a moment of, of, of um, hopefulness for me of like, wow, like, okay, there is some change happening, but I don't know. I, th I think we have a long way to go. Can you kind of speak into yeah. like maybe some of the history that you're aware of with like the Protestants complicity with the racist, you know, movement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much to, to consider there, but I think the first place that I start is, is logically like when you look at scripture uh, it, I just preached from uh, Isaiah 64 last Sunday, the first Sunday in Advent where we talked about hope and they were exiled in Babylon for, for over 70 years. That's like an entire generation of people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as they came back to Jerusalem, they started lamenting over the destruction of their entire nation mm -hmm. um, from the Babylonian empire. And what they did though, was they confessed their generational sin they were the great grandkids of the people who were first exiled for the continued sins of Israel. And so they were saying, we want to be personally involved in the uh, repenting from the original sin of our, our great grandparents who consistently sinned against God and sinned against their neighbors. Um, and, and that sort of repentance for generational or corporate or a word we use today, systemic sin <laughs> is, is something that we find difficult to do as especially evangelical Protestants, because we've had such an emphasis on personal salvation, yes. personal relationship with Christ mm. that we find it wrong to admit that there is complicity in original or corporate sin of our great grandparents or our grandparents. Yep. And, and so we, 
But I would, I would have to say it's because we've emphasized shame so much. We have shamed people like with wearing, uh, for women, wearing long sleeves, you know, back in the 50s or skirts down to their, their ankles, the way that we've shamed people into giving their tithes or their time to the church because we have fused sin so much with personal shame that it, it's, it makes people unmotivated to confront that corporate sin without any personal shame where Jesus doesn't shame people into repenting or confessing. It's the forgiveness of sins, which mm. is why we need to confess. And, and then logically, when you look at history, like I, I just admire Germany so much for how they have repented corporately mm. from World War II. Like they have torn down all any sort of statues. There's no flags that would point to that time frame in World War II history. If there's monuments built to their public repentance mm. from the Third Reich and all of the things that were done to the Jewish people and all the minorities. And then you look around our country and there hasn't been that, that public repentance or or commit commitment to repairing the things of the past. And just as a sheer impact of time, after over 400 years of that sort of repetitious behavior, even written into our declaration and constitution uh, and into our legal system, do, you, do we not think that there might still be some holdover to that 400 years of shaping as, as a culture? If we don't acknowledge that, then how are we supposed to move forward and actually see freedom uh, for all people? Yeah, it is weird. You know, I, re I remember the big debate around uh, monuments getting removed, and I listen to right. a lot of talk radio still. I, I like keeping in that world, and hearing their defenses were just terrible. Yeah. Like, well, you know, history, it's like, guys, it's a monument. You know, we're not yeah. erasing history. We're just saying we're not going to celebrate it anymore. I, I, what I'm wondering now, and, I, you know, we're, of course, I knew we were going to get here, but it seems like part of this problem is that because conservatism and Christian are so yeah. meshed because of that, and because these political pundits really speak now to Christians and they're kind of one of the same in the Christian's mm -hmm. mind, like pastor and Ben Shapiro have like the same weight. I think yeah. for a lot of people, what, yeah. how, you know, it seems like that's part of the problem is that they've just been taught that because it's all about the individual and that corporatism mm -hmm. is Marxist or liberal or whatever other buzzword is there. A lot of Christians, I think are like, they're naturally just like, well, I, I don't want to be a Marxist. So no, <laughs> not, nothing corporate, but really, right. and listen, I tell all our listeners this all the time. I am not well-educated. I just read basic books. Like for the lay people, it just takes <laughs> one or two big picture readings of American history to realize that like, we're not talking about Marxism or communism here. <laughs> I'm just yeah. talking about common sense. Absolutely. It really is. I mean, you look at, I've, I've been just like, so I just came back from three months of sabbatical and I had like a stack of history books that I wanted to read. And I was really, one of the big questions I was asking is where, why is Marxist a dirty word or why is communism a dirty yep. word? Yep. And if you, we just look at just a brief overview of World War II, we see that like Russia was our ally in World War II and we kind of forget that. And they lost over 60, mil 60 million people in that, in that war. Mm. Um, and no, so, sorry, 20 million people. And China lost uh, just as much as well. But the shifting of the economic tide and desire for oil uh, turned this communist 
country into an enemy. And then you have widespread, widespread McCarthyism trying to root out any communist in the United States. But we didn't do that with any German American. For, for example, when, when uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, we rounded all Japanese Americans up and put them in internment camps. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest ones that held 16,000 Japanese Americans is right here in Idaho, again. Wow. Uh, right in my home state, and we're actually turning it into a, a memorial for that, for that time, a public representation of our repentance during that time frame. Um, and we did the same with Guantanamo. Guantanamo Bay after 9-11, we rounded up Muslim and Sikh Americans, you know, really anyone who wore a turban, we rounded yeah. up and, yeah. and under suspicion of, of collusion with terrorists. We did that with anyone who looked communist. People mm -hmm. who wore glasses or spoke a second language in the 50s were rounded up under suspicion of communists. Did huh. that with Japanese Americans. So we have this legacy of have, well, whoever our enemy is, we turn against the Americans who look or act like them. But we only brought German Americans in for questioning hmm. and let them go on with their lives. There was no rounding up or anything. And what I found so just, just chilling to me was DuPont, all of these major business hmm. corporations funded the Nazi war machine. And Hitler had a portrait of Henry Ford in his office, not because of his business ingenuity, but because of his literature that he wrote against the Jewish people in the United States and helped to fund the eugenics program here in the United States. And then we became this refuge for like the head of NASA for the longest time was a was a former Nazi head official. And so like we became this refuge for this very right wing conservative white nationalist party and has made this very different approach to people in our own country during times of crisis or, or war. What do you say to people who would, who would tell you, well, I bet it just sounds like you just hate America. You're just bashing America. Um, you know, you just, if you don't like it here, move on. I mean, what do you say to that? Because I, I can imagine maybe some of our listeners or people that maybe you talked to would have that idea of like, yeah. well, you just obviously hate our country. Like you, you sure. want to see it destroyed. Yeah, I've been told that from people in my congregation sometimes. <laughs> a, uh, hashtag pastor life. <laughs> yeah, hashtag pastor life. Exactly. It's, it's, it's so funny. Uh, I have plenty of stories along that lines. But like my response typically has been, you know, if if I just recently got married, so I'm, I'm learning the marriage, uh, the marriage dance within those uh, contexts as well. But mm. my response has often been, when you love someone, do you not hold them accountable? If you love something so deeply, do you not want to see it at its best? Right. And it's so my critiques about America is not because I hate America. It's because yeah. I want to see America grow into what it, it could be. Its potential is huge in my eyes. And mm -hmm. I just want to see it grow into that. Yeah, I find the same kind of thing um, with myself. Whenever I critique the evangelical church, I get a lot of people, well, you hate the church. You want to see it destroyed. Stop bashing it. But I always tell people, so I'm a musician. And I say, listen, if, if my music instructors never critiqued me or never told me to get better, I would be a terrible musician. I would be horrible. Absolutely. I learned because people said, no, that's not right. No, your technique is, is not good. No, how you played that isn't good. And guess what? Some of my teachers weren't always super 
political about it. They just right. said, Tim, that wasn't good enough. Do better. So I, I do find that there, I don't know where this comes from, but it seems like in certain categories in our mind, it's okay to critique something unless it's like certain things like, okay, you can't critique the country. You can't critique the church. And I'm wondering how we, how we kind of get outside of that because I mean, look at, you know, look at the Bible, look at Jesus full of critique. That's how you make wow. things better. Yeah, absolutely. I, and it just confounds me. The more I got, uh, had a deeper understanding of scripture, the more I understood that critique or uh, refining is a central part of scriptures. Look at all the prophets. I mean, we have how many books named after prophets in the scriptures? Yep. How many books are named after kings? We have a history of kings, first right. and second kings, or chronicles, right. right? But how many books are named after a specific king? And Song mm. of Solomon is, I mean, it's attributed to him, but it's not literally named after him as if this is his legacy right. in the world. Right. And so our our heritage is built on the vo the voice of the prophets speaking truth to power. Right. Yes. And, and so if if we don't have Christians should be the first ones to acknowledge that critique or calling us to a better life of repentance to yeah. to better sanctification is a central part of who we are, including the empire that we. Where whatever empire we call home. That's right. So how, I mean, again, in your in your big picture view, how did you how do you think we got here with with the Christian ethic not being one to critique, but really being I mean blind blind allegiance in some cases. And sadly, I I say this a lot, but I think it's true. The past four years, I think, have really uh, discouraged a lot of people, including myself, to see faith leaders who claim to speak on behalf of God um, or people who are in our our leadership sphere really just um, make um, have an allegiance to a political party or a person mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I think has been unprecedented before. Yeah. Uh, but obviously yeah. there has to be a, you, you, you don't get there overnight, right? So no, no. what are some of those steps that you see in our history that have kind of gotten us here? Gosh, you know, I, I would say that it's really the puritanical, like the Puritan movement. So after, you know, after a bunch of Europeans came and settled here and there was momentum moving towards the Constitution and the writing of the De Declaration of Independence from, you know, Plymouth Rock forward, when the Puritans settled here, there was this deep intrinsic desire to take, to be the city on a hill, but to be a nation that dictates God's will for all other nations. Um, mm. So you look at the, the, the Puritans influence just in the 13 colonies alone, where you had the trials of antinomianism, where we are saved by grace and by grace, we are under no law, not even the law from scripture. So like this antinomian trend since the 13 colonies has really shaped a lot of what we call fundamentalism today. Mm. And, and I, I mean, this is, I hate painting with broad strokes, but you kind of, kind of have to with, with yeah. history sometimes, but you see the people who signed the declaration of independence. Yes, they were all white landowning males. But if you look at their religious affiliation, there was three Catholics. There was a bunch of congregationalists. There was several Anglicans like George Washington. Um, and there was several deists on, you know, they were all kind of this subsist of deist Christianity. And so you're talking right after, you know, you're still in the wake of the Protestant Reformation at this point, looking mm. at Europe and all of the, the conflict that's there. But they left because of a Christian nation state. Mm. 
And I don't think we really understand that. And all of them coming from Protestant and Catholic and Anglican backgrounds that are three separate traditions Mm -hmm. came together to write this document for one of the reasons was religious freedom. And so then you have the puritanical streak and then several of them becoming presidents later on with this deep desire that no, we are, we are not, we are not here for religious freedom per se. We want Christianity to be the main defining power of our land so that we can then dictate God's will to the world. And that has really snowballed into what we see as fundamentalism. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it has been interesting to see um, people in political leadership who identify as Christian use the religious freedom card when it's convenient, but never use it for other groups, right? right? So, like, we have to be scared of Islam. We have to be scared of, of oh, what if, an, you know, um, what's her name? Um, Rashida uh, Talib is that her name? Um, yeah. You know, um, you know, oh, well, well um, you know, she could be Muslim. Like, we should be scared of that. It's like, well, religious freedom, right? And I, right. I also have found it interesting to see that, um, like you said, we go from religious freedom, meaning I can worship how I want, to now, well, we have to legislate Christian morality, like LGBTQ rights have to be really minimized because we don't agree with you, and therefore you can't have any rights because of our freedom, but not for your freedom. And honestly, like I, it's one of those things where I, I don't know. To me, it's been kind of like obvious, like, guys, it's not very freeing to tell someone else that, that, that they have to adhere to a religious belief that they don't even live and that if they don't, they, you know, they're wrong or, or, or we're losing, you know, our nation's values. It's very interesting seeing how intertwined it's a very intricately spun web and it's very well, well created because it's hard to get out of it if you're really deep in it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the the real downfalls of how we can't really find this good separation between church and state in America is because whereas opposite or contrast in Europe, where you had a national church, right? The Catholic church was the, the, the designated church of the nation state. And so the parliament or government or the monarchy controlled aspects of the church and the church controlled aspects of the nation state. Mm. But in America, you never had a nationally recognized religion or church. And so what we've seen is there isn't a firm foundation from which Protestants draw like over 2000 years of Catholicism in Europe, right? Right. Protestants have already this, I mean, protest is part of our name, right? So that's, Sidebar, if anybody gets upset at protesting as a Protestant, you really have to check yourself. Well, no, no, Ben, I have to correct you. We all know you can only protest if you're protesting against the lockdowns. Oh, you're right. But you can't protest against anything else. You're right. Okay, sorry. Sorry. I'll take that as a correction. I forgive you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But we don't have a firm foundation. When we get upset with our church, we just leave. Like Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic church. He had to be excommunicated, kicked out because he wanted to reform from within. And we promised. Protestants have lost that lineage of trying to reform from within, having those hard critiquing conversations so that we can grow into who we've been meant to be. But we Protestants abandon these traditions or anything that smacks of authority and then try to become the authority ourselves. That's what we've really seen with evangelicalism this last, uh, gosh, last quarter century. You know, we've seen that. 
Yeah, it, it, it seems that way. Um, I find it um, – what I've been thinking about recently that I think ties really well into this conversation is that I've realized that the heart of the Reformation is always reforming. But it mm-hmm. seems like in our day, we've stopped that and that there are certain groups who are very quick to point out like, no, 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 there is nothing new. We can't reimagine. We can't rethink. I mean, you know, we, we, we just can't do it. And there are certain, uh, I would say, very uh, reformed groups who are very convinced that they have the corner on truth and the Bible right. and God's truth and anything else is, is heresy. But right. that really does a disservice to their own tradition, right? Because Martin Luther was seen as, in our context, that liberal, crazy Marxist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's who Luther was in his context, Absolutely. trying trying to push the, 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 the church forward. So I actually find it, you're in safer waters trying to push the church forward to better understanding the scripture and changing than I, than I do, than I, and I, and I don't find it as safe, you know, being in the waters of, no, this is how it's always been. This is totally okay. Because that's not really faithful to your own tradition. No, it isn't. My favorite church history historian, Yurislav Pelikan, he's a, an incredible, if you can read his five books on the, on church history, it's really life-changing, but he said that tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living wow and so and then i'll preach just forever because what we get caught up in is to making our our own sect or our own perspective of truth the traditionalism like we cannot change from this way when if god's word is living and breathing yeah. Is it not always moving or, or, or driving us forward? We're not staying still in our faith. It's right. active and moving and living and breathing in the world. God's, God's foundation never changes, right. right? But we are called to be a sent out moving people that is firm in Christ as the word of God, not firm in our own perspectives or our own convictions, the right. trad- traditionalistic type right. of yeah, you're right. I mean, Scott McKnight wrote a book, The Blue Parakeet, that talks a lot about this idea. Uh, where oh, you're, I'll have to look that up. Oh, it's a great book. He talks a lot about how every Christian generation is called to interpret the scriptures in their day, in their way, meaning mm-hmm. every culture has its own set of problems that we have to yeah. look at the scriptures to, to see what's happening. And right. I think that's a really good way of looking at it because, like you said, God, yes, God's, um, God himself does not change, but God meets people in their cultures, mm-hmm. which again, you can see in the Bible, how yeah, God absolutely. works with Adam and Eve is different than how he works with Abraham, different yeah. than how he works with Moses and on and on it goes, right? Yeah. It's the same God, but he's working in their context. So yeah. I, I do find that interesting. So, I mean, how do you think I, the question, cause I'm very, I, I I'm pretty pragmatic. I like to, ask well like what do we do <laughs> right because i mean yeah. i can rant like you can all day about the problems and they're sure. they're obvious to me i don't know where to start because yeah. in my view we're so fragmented there's tens of thousands of denominations we we're in this this consumeristic culture that says if you don't like it just leave we're yeah. in this church planning cycle of people planning churches not because we need them but because ultimately this is kind of i think the dirty secret they think that they can do it better than the, than yep. the last guy, right? Um, and I'm not absolutely. saying that church planning is wrong, but I mean, I, I've done the math in New Jersey. There's one church for every three square miles in New Jersey, okay? Oh, we have, my word. We have enough churches, but we're not talking. We're not working. You know, we're all in our own little silos. What do we do with this? What oh, do we do? Goodness. Help oh. me, Ben. 
<laughs> That's heartbreaking. Well, it's been a great conversation. I have actually, oh, uh, man, got you know, and I'm I'm still in the process of answering that that question as well. Like it hmm. feels it feels so overwhelming, especially you know, you and I we're in we're in ministry and looking at it from the front lines forward too. It, it feels like there is more. You know, somebody asked me the other day online. It was a crazy Facebook message, but they're like, "Hey." do you know what the most uh, global religion is? And I actually thought, you know, this is a really thoughtful question. I don't think he's looking for a thoughtful answer, but I'm just like, so what do you think it is? And he's like, it's Satanism. And I'm like, well, okay. And you know, and I, I just didn't right. respond and moved on with my day. But the most global religion right now is politics. Mm. We make everything political like every single thing we make as if it's a political problem that has political solutions. And we've even followed that trend as the church because we've made economy political. And if mm. you look at the church, we've followed the economic model for businesses as yep. churches. I mean, yep. I worked for Starbucks all through seminary. We had a Starbucks. Me too. Every, really? Oh my we're gosh. Tw we're, oh, twins. Oh, we're twins. We're twins. <laughs> but there was a Starbucks on every corner and, I remember the, gosh, I forget his, his name. He, the founder of Starbucks. Howard Schultz. Yeah, Howard Schultz. He was driving down in, in Seattle and saw one on all four corners of a single intersection. And they weren't talking to each other. They weren't like cooperating with each other. Right. They were literally in competition with each other. Yep. And yep. that, I thought that, that was such a, a stark picture of the church as well. And it's so like, where are we going to come to a point to where we, we drop off this consumeristic mentality yeah. as Christians, we stop making everything political and as if it has a political answer. And then we become this body of Christ that is actually putting central what we've confessed as a church for the last 2000 years. Our traditions start to shape us rather than this consumeristic business minded culture. We can actually get to the grit of who we're been called to be as Christians in the world. Yeah, I do find it ironic that some of the Christians who are the most uh, against culture have followed the culture's processes the most you know i yeah, mean how often absolutely. do we hear you know we, oh the cult the world is evil the culture is bad yeah. but your church model is an enterprise you know you have you have <laughs> yeah. you have a ceo for a pastor right you know it's mm -hmm. all about about how big your building is how nice your live stream works and listen yep. i i as a musician who has worked in that in that space i love the technology i love yeah. the production i, I it's yeah. beautiful i think that that music and even the lights it, it it's it, it's the modern view of, of what the artists have done in the Catholic churches, right? Yeah. I think that there's merit to it. But Amen. when that's the focus, when the focus is how big can our Sunday mornings be, and there's a lack of like um, intentional, committed community, mm -hmm. um, because you know we don't want to give the time or our culture is so individualistic, yeah. we can't break outside of that. I think that's where some of these breakdowns really happen. And in my view, the only way to start um, you know, uh, addressing them is just to start in our local context, breaking the trends as, as, mm -hmm. as best as we yes. know how. Maybe we're not the generation Absolutely. to solve it, but if we can lay down that foundation for the next generation, yes, that's good enough. <laughs> Amen. We got, I mean, we have to start somewhere. And yeah. really, the, it does start on the front lines of the local church. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I think one of the big hiccups for a lot of people, and I, listen, I understand it, having a family now, being married with the son, 
when your income is tied to your mm-hmm. your ministry profession, yeah. you can be um, afraid to rock the boat because you don't want to yeah. lose the tithe. And I'm, right. I used to be very cynical about that, like, oh, that's corruption. But also, when you have a family, I get it. You know, yeah. when you have a family that you have to feed. So I think that we have to we have to be willing in our evangelical circles to have an honest discussion about mm-hmm. what we think is fundamental and the only way to do church, because historically, this is a very new way of doing it church. It really is. Like, this but is we're calling it the old way. Right. Like, that's the myth, is we're right. calling it the oldest way, and it's right. not. No, it's oh. brand new. It's it, it's built on consumerism. It really mm-hmm. is. It's built on yeah. comfort. And there, are, are there are, is there a place for technology? Of course, obviously. Yeah. But we have to reconsider where our priorities lie. And mm-hmm. it cannot be built on building big gatherings. That could be a good fruit, but it can't right. be the focus of what we're yeah. doing here. Absolutely. I, I, I think I'd only add on to that. I've been... Uh, reforming in that effort, reforming the vision and the mission statement of my local church. And one of, one of the key factors I really want to see is that like, as, as someone who is always condemned as being Marxist leftist or whatever, and I'm like, (laughs) Hey guys, I'm just trying to center us. We've been like drifting right for so long. Right. I'm just trying to center us back. Like you're the ones who are like all off in the other direction. Right. And so like, but one of the condemnations of, like liberal people is that we don't ever preach or talk about sin ever. Like it's always Mm. these societal issues and you're blaming the culture for your problems and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you know what? No one on either side is talking about personal transformation. Mm. Like people on far right don't want to personally transform either. The irony to me of the people who are most staunch about the sovereignty of God are the same people who will quote Romans 13 until they're blue in the face that you have to submit to the governing authorities over you. They're the ones who are trying to make the the nation state sovereign. So it's like, if God is sovereign, then why are we trying to do this? So there's no desire for personal transformation. And I think that's where we really do need to start as evangelicals, where evangelizing for that transformation is something that we can really help to turn this tide around, is to emphasize that personal transformation that God's revival starts in our own hearts. And we need to start breaking these paradigms ourselves in our own heart and mind. I was talking to a friend last night and um, I was just saying how a, a core shift for us has got to be how we view the Bible. It has to. Um, yeah. I, I'm a big fan. And I mentioned them every show of the Bible project. They're my, my favorite so ever. Their podcast, Tim Mackey, is just like, I mean, they have totally saved my faith personally of like helping me so to reimagine good. the Bible. Right. Yeah. And when you see the Bible as primarily a story and not as a systematic theology or a puzzle, mm-hmm. the Bible really begins to come to life with themes that you never knew existed. Um, I'm a big believer that we really need a, um, a reformation of sorts of, of yeah. getting back to the Bible on its own terms yeah. and letting the Bible influence us, not us influencing the Bible through our Western American consumeristic culture. You know, oh, so it, that, that's a big problem that we have. What do you think yeah. about that? No, I think that's, that's right on. I, one of the phrases that Luther uh, always stuck with me after seminary was that um, scripture is the manger in which the Christ child was laid. Hmm. Worship the Christ child. Yeah. not the manger. Right. And, and I, I always get in trouble as a pastor because when people say this is the infallible word of God, I'm just like, actually, John 1, 1 tells us that the infallible word of God is Jesus Christ. 
Right. Like, right. The word of God, this collection of writing that is the written word of the Lord, but it points us to the living, breathing incarnation of God in the world, which is Jesus Christ. And so if we make, if we make the Bible the fourth person of the Trinity, then it, we're, we're yes. really elevating it above what it's supposed to be. And yes. so it has to point us to the word of God. It is John the Baptist's finger. That's what the Bible is, pointing us to the one who is to come and renew all things. And if we don't read it in that way, then it's going to become everything and become a tool uh, that's weaponized against other people. I have literally used that exact same phrase of we've made the Bible the fourth part of the Trinity. Those words have come out of my mouth so much because <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, you can look back on previous podcast episodes. I've said that because and I've said this before too. We've really made an idol out, out of the Bible and yeah, that shocks have. people. It really does. But when you mm -hmm. think about it, it's completely true. Um, it we, especially our English Bible. Mm -hmm. I believe that the Bible is perfect, but not the English one. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, like right. we, and, and yes. that's, not i think the reason why people don't like admitting that because everything is so tied together that if you pull one thread the whole thing comes apart right, right. like if you question uh the english interpretations of the bible as maybe not foolproof all of a sudden your faith can't be true that is yeah. dangerous and that's it's what happens so to our young people right our young yeah. people grow up in church they think that they have a great perspective they hit the world we're never trained that there are other world, uh, viewpoints mm -hmm. out there and they crumble they crumble. Oh, seriously. Yeah. Well, it's be, and I mean, you know, this as a homeschooled kid being raised in the church, church was where we were given all of the answers to life. Yep. Bible was a blueprint, the, yep. the life manual. That's what yes. it was called yep. so often, but really like classic traditional Christianity makes us good people of at asking questions. We are people who are humble in asking good questions, claiming that we are confessing church, pointing to truth in Jesus Christ, not a people who have a monopoly and own truth, right? And that's such a different starting point. Yeah. If, and if we actually owned who we were as a confessional church, we wouldn't have our young people leave the, the first time there was a huge question posed in their life because we've shaped them into needing all of the answers which that's no right. one is going to have that's right i mean what happens it's very simple you you're taught in, in youth group don't have sex before marriage you go okay yeah. i won't do that you get to college and someone says oh why don't you sleep around oh because god says we shouldn't well why does god say we shouldn't uh have you I don't read know. solomon like, right King like solomon I, I i don't know David? why it's you know? in the bible yeah. right exactly <laughs> so yeah i mean you're absolutely correct um Oh boy, Ben, I feel like we need like three more hours. You yeah, know? we do. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that like, I think that it, it helps me to know, and I'm sure it helps you to know that, that there are people who are thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And how old are you, by the way, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 35. Okay, so I'm 32. And I feel like we're at this stage now, like our 30s are kind of the space where we have a little bit of wisdom, not much, mm -hmm. but a little bit. And we're a little <laughs> bit wiser than where we were in our 20s. But we're yep. also not as cynical, right? Like we're mm -hmm. not here to destroy, nope. but we also need to move forward, right? Amen. And like, I, and people's, what people think about me doesn't matter as much as it used to. And I'm committed more and more, especially with what you're saying, like 
we have to get back to the tradition of Christianity. Yes. In the past yes. like 70 years, we kind of made a sharp right detour and exactly. we're calling this normal. <laughs> this is how it's always been. It's like, it's really not how it's always no. been, guys. Just, I swear, it's really not. Not so, at all. Yeah, so I think we have a lot of work to do, but there are people doing that work like you, yeah. which is great to know. It really it's is. So, it, is it is good to know that we are in the trenches together. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any final things you want to add into this conversation? We've covered a lot of topics here. Yeah. We really have. I got, Gosh, I think one of the biggest things for me that has just continued to come up in my mind as we've been talking is that how important it is where we start with God. Um, and, and so much of my upbringing was the primary characteristic of God is God's sovereignty. So his unchangingness is uh, from a sovereign, powerful God. When I have come to find that now being Wesleyan Arminian, like my, my main foundation, the, the most primary characteristic for God is God is love. And so God's immutability is shaped by how God is love. God's sovereignty is dictated by God's love. So when you think of God as not changing, you look at God changing God's mind with Lot. God changing and repenting yep. in Jonah, God changing and regretting over anointing yes. Saul as king or putting the flood on the planet. The flood, so there's yep. all of these places where God regrets, God changes God's mind and all of those things. Why? Because God never changes in being a loving God. And when you love someone, there is a different nature of relationship than an authoritarian law and order God that governs the people by a strict code to law. You look at first and second Kings and it's this flexible, loving, grace giving God that walks alongside humanity, even though humanity is unfaithful. And yeah. so I think starting with how we see God will then shape us to how we read scripture in a loving way, how we love ourselves and how we love each other. Um, I just, I think that's the final, the final thought I had as we were talking. I'm not going to add to that. It was wonderfully put. <laughs> ben, where can people find you? Do you have a Twitter, Instagram? I mean, plug everything you got. Go ahead. <laughs> well, so I, uh, you can find me under Ben Kramer on Facebook and Twitter. I also run a nonprofit uh, preacher's resource called a plainaccount.org. And I'm a lectionary preacher. So I preach from the lectionary every single Sunday. But we have uh, contributors, uh, scholars, and professors from all over the world that, uh, that put up commentaries for that um, that lectionary section for the week uh, so that if a pastor doesn't have time to sit down and study, we've got all the tools and resources there for a free 24-hour accessible site so pastors can come and study those, those texts. So you can look up a plainaccount.org on Facebook and uh, online, and we have a discussion group there as well. Wonderful. Ben, again, a pleasure having you on. We will have to do it again. I feel I like we're just, I'm just warmed up now, you know, <laughs> yeah. like not ready to really work out. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so it was great having you on. Thanks so much. Yeah, really good being here. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology in Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.